Hello lovers, go to entamopleasurables.com for your slippery needs and get 20% off with the WILD20 promo code. You'll thank me later. Running wild with Christine, sex, success, and other slippery rabbit holes. Welcome to episode 101. I am your host, Julia Santana Parrilla, and today Christine is in the hot seat. Oh shit. How do your buns feel, Christine? Are they toasty? They're sizzling. Sizzling. <laughs> I was listening to this podcast, um, The Armchair Expert with Dax uh, Shepard. Yeah, and Glennon Doyle. Oh. And they were like, oh, um, like we both have control issues. And I was just like, <laughs> feeling it right now (laughs) what do you mean relinquishing control yes i trust you julia go ahead (laughs) well you know it's an honor to be entrusted with this flipping of the script and hopefully with the help of some of the ask me anythings that you got um well at least hopefully it'll be fun for you It'll it'll move it'll move away from anxiety and into and into joy. Uh, yeah, let's let's okay. We'll we'll go with that. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Okay. So so let's ease in. Mm-hmm. Um, why podcasting? Oh, yeah. It's just like it seems like I'm discovering this pattern that I actually don't like do things with like intention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like nothing funny happens. Compulsive. <laughs> yeah, like the why? Why write the book? I don't know. I had a breakup and I needed to put words on paper. Like why did podcast? And I had the bus- this book that I needed to promote, and someone was like podcast, and I was like okay. Mm. Um. So that's literally what happened. I was on the really hot date with this like Tom Hardy lookalike Ugh. in London. Drool. Hi. <laughs> um. And he was um. Just like, oh, you know, it's like a really good way to do it, and you don't get censored like you do on most social media. Like, it's a good way to plug. I was like, yeah, I don't know if I have anything to say, but sure, why not? But I knew that my brain is so, like, fast and all over the place that I needed, a pl- like, a podcast that had guests. Mm-hmm. I could never be one of those people that just, like, talk at you for 45 yeah. minutes. I mean, yes, I can in real life, but, like... <laughs> In a recording setting. <laughs> and uh, and then, like, I think starting, like, episode nine or something, it just started having a life of its own. And it just... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was never intentional. Yeah. It is now. A hundred episodes plus in. Yeah. But... But, I mean, that's... That's magical. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just kind of... Well, this kind of leads me into my next question, which is how do you choose your guests? Mm-hmm. I make mistakes. <laughs> is that how I do it? That's a good way to start answering <laughs> this question. <laughs> like this right now. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Rude. <laughs> me, not you. Oh, okay. I'm the guest. <laughs> That's right. Sorry, I forgot I flipped the switch. <sighs> um, no, like, yes, I'm totally. I invited you here to insult you. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, no, I... Honestly, at the beginning, it was like, who do I know that's intelligent, that's got something to say? And, like, I think at the beginning, it was a lot of just, like, who do I want to sit and have a bottle of wine with Mm -hmm. and have those conversations that you wish were broadcasted while you're having them? You know, like, these magical moments with people when you're like, this is the stuff. Yeah. Um, So it started like that, and then eventually it started... I had this huge phase, and I think you and I were friends when this happened, where I was like, maybe I shouldn't... Like, to, like, 
reinforce my bubble and just constantly mm. have people on that I agree with. Maybe this should be like a debate situation. That was a disaster. Because <laughs> basically the only people that I will disagree with are people who deny other people's fundamental rights. Um, so yeah, not necessarily the most people you want to be laboring for. with. No. Yeah. And so I was like, and then I finally was like, okay, I do need to pursue people that I agree with, but that I am not familiar with. And mm. that's sort of what I'm going with now. It's like a good mix of like, I still have people on that are people in my life that I believe should be heard mm. um, that don't necessarily are not plugging anything. There's just the conversation is of value. And then I also pick people that I want a platform. Like, I don't know what the conversation is going to be like, but I believe in what they do or what they have to say or like what their messaging is. So mm-hmm. that's kind of, but really it's just like a weird mix of like, Hey, see, like talk to this guy or this person. <laughs> and then me being like, mm, why not? Or like me being like, mm, found an Instagram page that I like, who's behind it, and then, mm-hmm. you know, going like that. Yeah. And then messaging them, being like, hey, I don't know you, wouldn't talk to me for an hour? No big deal. The thing is, is that what you're offering is something of mutual benefit for the most part, right? Because yeah. it, this is a platform, and a lot of people, they don't think about going on podcasts necessarily. And people want to know about them. Yeah, people want to know about them. They want to know what their, uh, what they they could possibly glean from their and their life's insights. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I think that's sort of the point now is that I'm not, I'm not really picking people as per topics anymore. Like I mm. thought I needed to in the beginning. I'd be like, okay, I want to talk about this topic, so I'll bring you in because you know about this topic. Yeah. Now it's more like a, tell me your story mm-hmm. and more context. I think it's. And I say this in every episode, so I'm sure you're sick of it. But, like, context is important. Mm -hmm. Where you came from defines how hard it was for you to get to today. Mm -hmm. Like, being an artist coming from artist parents is easier than, you know what I mean? Like, than not. So, like, I think those battles as well as those privileges are important to point out when you're having conversations that could sound like they're advice or like they're like this is how you should do it like mm, not for everyone this is how it worked for me mm-hmm. and for you clearly but like I think that's lacking and that's why I tend to just do that now yeah yeah well you know that I'm a big fan of storytelling I just think that it's such a um humanizing and demystifying yeah uh practice cool. mm-hmm. and um it's such an exemplary way of just being like, this is how people live. And this is how we've like, what storytelling is the most rudimentary form of sharing knowledge and community building and empathy. And like, it's just, it's just, a, you know, I think, and that's what sort of took me away from writing. And I think that's why I'm struggling with writing right now. Cause it's so definitive. Like Mm -hmm. it's like an art form. That's like, this is it. And I think we have enough. This is it in the world. Like we need a, what about, like you know what would it look like if like I think those are easier to do in the in the audio vocal form Mm -hmm. absolutely which again it's like it's like I knew that we would smoothly transition (laughs) through these questions (laughs) it's not that hard I'm telling you you were like oh I'm I'm like you'll see it's actually much easier than people think (laughs) Uh, you heard it here, folks. Start your own podcast. 
yeah. today. <laughs> also use Anchor if you want. I haven't plugged Anchor in a while, but it's the app I use for podcasting and it's great. This is go. not a paid ad. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. Anchor. Anchor. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Getting back to it. So, um, what has been, and I think maybe this, this might be a multi-layered question, mm-hmm. but to oversimplify it, mm-hmm. um, what has been the greatest lesson you've titrated from the experience of listening to and speaking with your guests? Cause they're coming to you with kind with, with the, the lessons that they have distilled from their lives that yeah. they want to share with people, mm-hmm. right? And you're sitting here, you're listening with that to them, you're you're engaging with them, and through that, you're creating meaning in relationship. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm wondering what's kind of been your greatest takeaway mm. uh, from from holding this space with people. Um, I think, yeah, it is definitely a multi layered question. I think just like on a base level, you know, I have like my wrap up question that's Mm -hmm. always sort of like a minute of wisdom type of thing. And, and that question for those who are not familiar is, uh, what's a thing that you wish you knew more instinctively or that you wish you were told. And I think that's a big one for me that sort of, I, again, did not plan to come up with. It just did. And it was, it just seemed to like be something I wanted to know from others. Um, and I think that sort of reinforced my, mm, my intention that I saw, like, sort of starting to exist out of it was that I missed the times of just sitting with my friends for hours mm-hmm. talking without the phone, without the, like, and I'm the first one to be on my phone. Like, this is, I'm criticizing my own self, not my <laughs> friends. Um, <laughs> To, like, just sit there and, like, look at the stars and be on a whatever exterior place somewhere for free with no cost, just sitting there with your friends and rebuilding the entire world. And I think that's continues to be the takeaway is that people have so much to give. And that's, like, a, another big lesson from the thing is, like, people are generous. Mm-hmm. All these people decided to give me a piece of their time, a piece of their intimacy, a piece of their vulnerability to a complete stranger. So people are generous and they are trusting. Mm-hmm. And, and that is something that I didn't expect, that I didn't anticipate. Like, I knew, like you said, it, it sounds like such a good quid pro quo, like, I'll give you this, you, you, you know, like blah, 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 blah. But actually that's not how it feels in mm. the moment. It feels really like just like a free fall, free fall into what's on your mind and on your heart and in your energies. And I think that's, that's definitely something that I'm continue to be blown away by. Yeah. It's just like people's willingness and readiness to be like, yes, this is what my lived experience was like, you know, mm-hmm. and this is how I feel, which and is this not is what I've learned. Yeah. yeah. And this is what I'm struggling with. Like, this is what I'm still trying to learn. Like all those things are not usually readily available for most people. You know what I mean? Like it's not encouraged. Yeah. There's no, there's no place where they're like, do this. You know what I mean? Like, you don't do it in school. You don't do it at work. You don't do it when you're dating. You're pretending to be another person as part of the dating process. You know what I mean? Like, so... Yeah. <laughs> True. Like, it's not part of... 
you're probably not doing it with your family. Like, most of us have dysfunctional family relationships. Like, and if you are, fucking good for you. Like, I am envious. But the reality is, like, when do we do that? Like, in those magical moments when you find people willing to do that with you. Yeah, and I think it is very hopeful in terms of looking forward, um, setting this as a precedent that mm-hmm. it's we don't need to be avoidant of difficult feelings and of vulnerability because that's where that's where we do most of our learning is in that space. Yeah, but I think very uh, you know older generations, not to say that we have less demands now but certainly there were more restrictions on what people could accomplish yeah before and so there's some really ingrained avoidant tendencies Mm -hmm. um and i know that this is heightened in some families more than others i know that for example immigrant families exactly i was (laughs) just gonna say that Rampant. Minority families. <laughs> exactly. It's just because you're trying to um, assimilate, right? And, you're and, trying to integrate mm-hmm. while retaining, per, like, your own identity. Like, I see it all the time in my parents. It's actually shocking because my dad has assimilated. Mm. He is more Swiss than a Swiss person. Like, he's, like, borderline, like, right-leaning. And I'm like, the fuck? <laughs> Um, I have conversations constantly that, like, I'm, like, battling with him over these things because he's like, well, like, I am prejudiced against foreigners. I'm like, you're a foreigner. Like, you don't have a Swiss passport. What are you talking about? Like, think about the internalized shit you're just, like, anyways. Um, so I'm having those conversations. Um, But is he talking about white foreigners or? Yeah, like, he's like, oh, I hate the French who, like, come work in Switzerland and don't, like, integrate culturally and think that they can come here with their unionized bullshit. This is Switzerland. You you put your head down and you work. Like, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Like, okay. I don't even know where to begin with, like, the shit you're just saying. But okay. Um, and then my mother, who has the Swiss passport, Mm -hmm. but my dad doesn't. Is like still like thirty years later. She's like, I hate this country. I hate I hate the culture. Like this is not how I. This is not where I feel at home. Like, she's like, I wouldn't change anything. You do you, but don't ask me to be that way. Don't ask me to live that way. I'm gonna maintain my identity and be grateful for the shit you're giving me, but do not ask me to assimilate. Yeah. So it's like really interesting to, to see how like, the context sometimes doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like the the way that politics articulate their integration policies and like their cultural policies really depends on who you are like and how that lands for you and that's that's just what it is where did I begin with this why did I end up here you know because we were talking about avoidance ah yes yes so I think it's it's easy for like my dad to avoid um looking inward and be like why do I feel this way Mm -hmm. and it's and my mother on the other side is avoiding, like, any like likeness to them, mm-hmm. you know? Like, and I'm like, hey, guys, like, you lived here for 30 years. You're more Swiss than you know for my mother and for my father. I'm like, hmm, like, yeah, <laughs> okay. Like, okay. Imagine if people said that about you, like, 30 years ago. Not imagine. They said that about you 30 years ago. So just chill a little. Yeah. Um, I, it, yeah. It's conversations that need to happen, but they're not happening because 
immigrant parents are like, I gave you a future. Shut the fuck up and be grateful. That's, yeah, that's another thing is that I think ultimately, increasingly what I'm realizing is that it's all linked to survival. Uh-huh. You know, people are just surviving. They're doing it in ways that it's basically just the that way that they're them. coping. Yeah. Um, but sometimes we get stuck in those ways, you know, and our most immediate reaction is defensiveness. Yeah. You know, and I think I see that in my parents all the time. Yeah. You know, a, a lot of cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. and a lot of defensiveness and it's all linked to survival, to being yeah. like, we came here to do this and... We didn't have the luxury to do the self-development that you're talking to me about right exactly. now. This is not relevant to my story because I couldn't do that. And it's like, yeah, but you can now. Yeah, no, but they're... they're... <laughs> I know! <but> that's <laughs> exactly my point! Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is why I love the... The, the lessons of this, which is why yeah. I love that this is, and probably why I still do it, is because I'm like, okay, so, like, there is something. There is something in this generation of ours and younger. Like, mm-hmm. there is something that that has us going, we are breaking these family patterns. We are breaking the cyclical shit that is there because of avoidance, that continues yeah. to exist because, um, you know what, I'm surviving and that's, that's good enough. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And you're like, uh. Yeah. Is it though? Because your survival is putting other people down and it is continuing those like infrastructures of, of inequality and oppression. Yes. Because you're focusing on capitalist survival, like which it's hard not to if you're surviving. It's really hard not to, but we, we've just proven that it doesn't work. Yeah. My parents' coping strategies have lent themselves very well to their um, survival in the capitalist status yeah. quo, you know? Yeah. But it just, it doesn't align with their well-being ultimately but anyway I think another thing is you know coming from this same conversation is just the value of communication yeah you know yeah with the avoidance and everything it's another thing was that at least in my in my um in my experience, my parents doesn't, didn't necessarily communicate certain things with me. No. And I look at my grandparents, they did not communicate anything with yeah. me. Um, you know, hardly told me stories. Yeah. Um, Much less their expectations. Exactly. Their needs, their wants. Exactly. Well, and their needs and their wants were irrelevant because... Yeah. They, they were centering me. They were centering mm-hmm. the children in their lives, you know, the next generation, the hope for the future. Um, but without kind of giving us any information for how to do better in this future, you know, <laughs> it's like, how are we not going to replicate what you've shown us? Yeah. Unless you communicate with us. Otherwise, just demystify your experience. I was thinking about how as a child, I had no perception of the fact that my parents had their own shit. Yeah, yeah. I had no perception of it. None whatsoever. So definitely thinking into the future, when I have children, I want to very clearly demystify the fact that it's like, okay, you know what? Yeah, you have your shit, but I have mine as well. Yeah. I <laughs> did not have that privilege. I was very aware of my parents' shit. Um, mostly because they divorced when I was nine. So yeah. that like puts you as the eldest child in a precarious situation, being well too acquainted with mm. their personal shit. Um, but at the same time, it was not in a way that was like, 
intended communication. Mm-hmm. It was again a coping mechanism, like a, yeah. an, an an unconscious, unmeditated thing. It was just like you need to know this because, like, if I don't do this, I don't have food tomorrow. It was yeah. like that kind of like urgency, and it's like, well, I mean, it made me really good with money. Thanks, <laughs> mom. Like, Thanks, mom. <laughs> I literally am like the only person that hasn't really had a steady job in 10 years, but has savings. Like, wh- look at you go. Doesn't make any sense. Like <laughs> literally my friends are like, you're just like, you had savings in, in college and you worked at a bar. Like what's wrong with you? And I was like, yeah, I just have like very bad immigrant problems. <laughs> like, and if I don't have money in my savings account, the world is falling apart. Um, so <laughs> and it's like that's a an trauma thing. Bonus. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm like, thank you. It made me like, yeah, it is. But also, like, it doesn't come from something that was deliberate. You know what I mean? So I I think in that sense, um, there's great value to these moments of, like, moments, moments, of (laughs) deliberate communication, of deliberate sharing and storytelling, of deliberate um, exchange of experience. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm going to shift gears just a little bit. Yeah. Um, just to kind of direct us at some of the ask me anythings so that people aren't just like, hey, what the hell? <laughs> I asked you something. I asked you something. <laughs> exactly. Um, what did they ask? You know, I'm going to tie a couple of these questions kind of into situating ourselves in the now mm-hmm. and having a bit of like have this conversation skew a little bit towards... Um, anti-white supremacy. Yeah. Um, and um, being being called in and being wrong. You yeah. know, um, being a podcaster. Yeah. You're putting yourself at risk of being called in. I'm purposefully saying called in rather yeah. than called out because yeah. those are very they're quite different. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm at a risk of being called out also. Also, but. <laughs> also. Um, but with the called in, it kind of uh, it insinuates that you're going to um, reflect engage. on it and yeah. you're going to engage. So um, so it gives you a little bit more credit. <laughs> Thank you. But, um, you know, you're, you're putting yourself at risk in certain ways to having people tell you you're wrong. Yeah. You know, and, and you're, you have it on record. Yeah. Your voice saying it out loud. Yeah. Um, so how do you, how do you manage that? How do you, um, yeah. Cope with that. I mean, first off at risk is like, what's the risk? Like what's at risk? What my reputation, my integrity, my ego. I don't frankly feel like that's of any importance, Mm. like considering the now, considering where we are in time and space and the issues that this world is facing. Like who gives a fuck? Mm -hmm. This white lady over there saying the wrong shit, like, okay, great. I'm one of however many, you know what I mean? So I think, yeah, I'm I'm not saying that it doesn't feel like ego death and I'm not saying that it doesn't feel unfair and unjust in the moment when you're like, shit, but my intentions were good. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, but the impact was shitty. So therefore, what you did was shitty. Yeah. And I think it, it, I was really scared of this before I ever started podcasting. I was really scared of this with my writing mm-hmm. um, because 
when you're talking, yes, it's on the record, but it's somehow more malleable. It's like mm. the conversation was going this way, the context, who I was speaking with. There's a lot of things that you can sort of maneuver your way out of. Yeah. When you're writing, you cannot. You chose to put that word on paper. Like, there's not like a million, like, there's not like, oh, that's not what right. I wrote. It is what you wrote. Um, Feels more intentioned. A hundred percent. So yeah. that's why I never really wrote my Me Too pieces. I never really wrote that stuff because I was like, I don't know if I'll feel that way in five years. And and I still like, I'm like, the book is the way that it is because I wanted it to be a representation of me at a certain time. Mm-hmm. Not a representation of me as, a, as an entity, but like, this is like what 19-year-old Christine was going through and she did not call herself a feminist and that is a fact. So there is no way to like, like yeah. that's what it was. Um, whereas now with this, I feel like it's more present because people are having more of those conversations of like, what if I say the wrong thing and say the wrong thing, like do it. Don't be silent. Don't be complicit. Like I'm sure I'm a hundred percent sure that if I go back and listen to the last hundred episodes of this, I have said horrific shit. (laughs) I have misgendered people. Most likely I have like, you know what I mean? Like I've Mm -hmm. done. I've said some horrible things looking back now in my context today. And I'm not saying those things anymore. Yeah. And that's the point. So I'm still saying other wrong things that hopefully a hundred episodes from now I will not be saying anymore. So it's the it's a process of evolution. It's a process mm-hmm. of growth. It's a process of learning, of learning when to speak and when to shut up and when to say, hey, I was wrong. I think we we put a lot of weight into fearing being wrong and Mm. and it actually like looking back now and I think this is how I rationalize um my growth in my head is that I've been saying this since university that the course the class that I took about politics of fear that was about looking at the rhetoric and looking at grammar and looking at systemic language how it influences the world that we live in and and the, one of the questions in the class was like, what if we removed certainty? What if grammatically speaking, what if linguistically speaking, every statement you made included, I might be wrong? Yeah. In the words that you were using, what if we couldn't articulate certainty? Because inevitably we cannot know for sure. Just constantly living in the conditional. <laughs> exactly. And, and I think there is tremendous power in that thought exercise because that includes that you might be wrong all the time yeah and what is what is so scary about that why does that terrify you because you're used to having ground to stand on because you're you want to cling to a certainty like why are these crazy conspiracy theories really successful right now is because people don't know what to trust they don't know what to believe and they don't know what they're going to say to their kids and they don't know how to like so they cling to something that that to them feels more certain, that feels less scary and doubtful and, mm. and unstable. And, and I think that's what we need to get rid of. That yeah. necessity for like, I know what's going to happen and I know what is going on and I know what to do and I, and I need to know. Mm-hmm. I need to control this. I need to be on the good side and I need to be one of the good ones. Like, yeah. dude, you don't know like the... Like, are you, like, someone was saying to me yesterday, like, can you scientifically, you as an individual, individual prove that the earth is round? 
Like right now I cannot sit and tell you the science behind it. Like I'm trusting science. Yeah. That has for centuries been saying, hey, we were wrong. Here's the new thing that we found out. So like, why can't we like, as people who believe in science, believe in the fact that the science is wrong. Yeah. Has always been wrong. And that's the power of it. Well, that's the thing is that even the scientific method is all about proving yourself wrong. Proving yourself wrong. It's about like a theory is only a theory if it's falsifiable. So like that's that's how we go about learning things, even just from the like the most learning how to walk, learning how to walk. Yeah, yeah. You're like, well, not that. <laughs> you know, exactly. that's how that's our process of learning is ultimately a process of elimination, and the way that we're living our lives is emergent you know it's emergent it's iterative it's fluid fluid integrative as we go along things within our world are going to be changing and we have to stay in a state of humility exactly you know exactly and I think that's where our need for certainty comes from especially in the west especially in colonizer countries like you 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 cannot you cannot be aggressive and arrogant without certainty. Mm. You need the certainty in order to continue throwing out this agenda that you have the right answer, that you have the best way, that you know best. Mm-hmm. And that's corrosive all over. Yeah. And therefore, like, in a way, I mean, call me an anarchist or whatever you want, but like that's that's the that's the core of the problem is that mm-hmm. people believe that they're right and they have the arrogance and the confidence to say that they're right because that's what culture is telling them that they are. Yeah, I understand the need for that in earlier days. Yeah, in earlier days and years, decades past, where you know. We had to rely on having things have very clear limits because we had to... The expansiveness of our world and the possibilities of being were so expansive that it was overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So people needed to have some... To, to, to have some confinement. to where really comes from. Exactly. To really kind of tell them... Who they are and what they can do. Yeah. But now we're at a place where we are so diverse that there is really no one way of doing or being anything. And the things that were once put in place to benefit a select few people <laughs> um, are no, no longer relevant. No. They, but, never, they never were beneficent. No. They were useful. Yeah. To creating society. Yeah. But if you look back at Plato, like as early as Plato, like reread Plato and you will see that he is not advocating for any kind of certainty or any Mm -hmm. one way to have a society. And that as soon as you think you have the way, you are wrong. So I think that's, that's in the... This is like a really deep conversation now as to like how I deal with being called in. But like, um, I think that's sort of what I try and maintain. And I think, you know, the last few months of social activism have been a huge exercise in that and being like, listen, like I'm going to do more than 
um, virtue signaling only in the way that mm. I'm doing the things that feel right to me and until someone shows me that that was not the right thing to do. And then I'll yeah. correct the course and I'll keep correcting the course forever. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's, that's the idea. Yeah. And so, yes, please call me in. Please call me in. And please, if you have the bandwidth and if you are of privilege, you should be the one calling me in and not waiting until somebody... Yeah whose life is at stake does that. And you don't necessarily have to have your argument completely put together to call someone in. It's just, if you have a gut feeling about something, begin that conversation in a curious way. Exactly. You know, acknowledging that you don't have it totally figured out, but who fucking does, right? But this doesn't feel so good because maybe this is how, you know, like, and I think that's obviously if I start getting it totally wrong like I'll sh- I yeah. hope that someone tells me shut the fuck up and like just literally like shut up for a long time yeah think about what you've done think about what you've done <laughs> exactly. which is um hopefully how we'll all start to be held accountable yeah. yeah yeah okay well that felt really good let's continue <laughs> um so a lot of the questions that you got mm-hmm are very focused on, you know, um, sex. The sexy sex. Yeah, things, <laughs> things that you've learned about sex, things that you've learned about uh, being in relationships, fears and anxieties about um, sexual preferences mm-hmm. and decision-making. And so while I'd like you to talk about that, I'd also... Um, like to maybe acknowledge some of the black sex educators that exist and um, maybe some of the core lessons that you may have gotten from them that have informed, let's say, um, the most important lesson that you've learned about sex. Yeah. Um, uh, There's... Most of them will have been cited in episode 100, so refer to that list for those very important people whose voices should be heard. Uh, But I think in general, what I've learned um, from black sex positive um, advocates, I think it started like with consent, Mm. like way at the root of things. You know, when you are somebody whose sheer existence is at risk for simply being, you're extra careful. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, you have to be extra careful. And that alone is the root of a lot of consent tools we have in the King community, is at the root of, of all the good things in the King community. And I think, generally speaking, fucking Stonewall, like, you know, like, it comes from black trans activism that mm. has allowed us to get so far into LGBTQ plus issues and existence and lifestyles and um I think forgetting that is so fucked up like mm. it, it, it all of it is political that existence is political your sex life is political um 
even if you are white, cis, straight, married, and Christian, that is still a political statement. Yes. So I think, you know, putting putting yourself in a box that's like, no, I'm fine. Like, this has nothing to do with me. is impossible. It has everything to do with you because the rights that we have today, we wouldn't have for, if it wasn't... Based on you. Exactly. <laughs> and I'll, I'll make sure to copy-paste some key accounts in the description. Yeah. So these next questions mm-hmm. are directly some of the AMAs. So um, when did you first realize that a monogamous relationship wasn't what you wanted? Hmm. Hmm. When I was single. Oh, yeah. I spent 2016, 17, 18. Yeah, three years being very rebelliously single <laughs> and promiscuous <laughs> and having a great time. And, um,. I met Mark through the lens of this is a friend at work. So there was no sort of impetus to what our conversations were about. But inevitably somehow, um, because of probably the podcast and his prior relationship, we started talking about non-monogamy. And I was seeing some people, I was seeing a couple of couples back then and I was seeing some people in open relationships um, whilst maintaining my single status so I was toying with non-monogamy sort of as as like if I if I if I even accepted to be in a relationship this is what it would have to look like because I didn't want to give up any of the me that I had found again Mm -hmm. in those single years like I had that traumatic breakup that you all can find out tons about in the book <laughs> I don't want to talk about it anymore um I mean I want to talk about the book but not that fucking breakup um so I'd lost myself I'd entirely lost my identity to the script hmm. my hair was long I had absolutely zero health like physically speaking I was at my least healthy and I didn't recognize myself and I think in the same vein of what we were talking about I had this process of elimination I was like trying on these different pairs of shoes and these people that were willing to exchange bodily fluids with me and be like (laughs) which you know is a sore spot right now (laughs) cannot do that um but um yeah it was just like a process of like oh you bring this into like you bring this out of me you bring this out of me you bring that out of me you like Mm -hmm. you inspire these things and in that sense I think that's when I started realizing shit like I can't give this up yeah not in the sense that like someone's never going to be able to get no one should have the responsibility of keeping all of the sides of me alive Mm -hmm. that is not something I'm comfortable with someone who has like five languages in their head four home countries um very different careers for like how are you supposed to even like compete with that like there's a lot of things that you cannot you cannot have led the same life as me and like know how to sing this folk serbian song but also how to talk about hr but also like there's too many different things in me that i want to keep alive and that would be unfair to ask of one person Mm -hmm. and i think that's when i and mark had been non-monogamous before we started um committing to one another and 
the way that he talked about relationships was very resonant to mine, and that's when that's when we decided to do this. And I honestly don't know that I'll keep doing this this way forever. I don't yeah. know. This is just the way that we're doing it now. Yeah. I mean, what makes sense to you makes sense to you. Exactly. And it'll it'll develop over time, you know. Yeah. As as things continue to evolve in the world and in your lives. Yeah. So that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um. So. What fears and anxieties did you have to over did you have to overcome when you realized that you were interested in an alternative non-vanilla sexy lifestyle and what did you do to overcome them? Mm. <laughs> this is going to sound terrible to most people who really want to know the answer to this for like some inspiration but like I had no anxiety. <laughs> 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 I mean, my first ever sex party that I really engaged in. I mean, I you know you end up at some house parties that turn sexy. Like I, I don't yeah. count those. I don't count those. Those are like accidental, like accidental yeah, sex fun times. Yeah, yeah. Like the first time I went to a ticketed kink event was also the first time I ever did Molly. Oh, what a good time! <laughs> it was great. <laughs> um, but my anxieties were all about the Molly and not at all about the mm. sex party. So I. <laughs> I don't think I had anything to like deal with sexually because at that point it's like three years into like my I'm I am me I am a strong bisexual independent woman and I can do whatever the fuck I want Mm. so I was like at a peak peak ego like peak peacock feathers out just like watch me burn (laughs) um but the the drugs thing was entirely new to me as you may or may not have noticed, I do not like to relinquish control. Um, and therefore, drugs have always been like, a, whoa, what do you mean I can't snap out of it? Like, you can snap out of, like, a bottle of wine. You cannot yeah, snap you can. out of, like, mushrooms. Um, <laughs> I mean, maybe you can. Who knows? Um, you probably don't want to. <laughs> that's the thing. <laughs> so I think that's sort of... Um, it's funny how those usually tie in together. I feel like a lot of people, especially nowadays, who are focusing on pleasure and alternative modes of sexy times are also, like, big proponents of psychedelics and entheogens and, like, um, that was always less comfortable for me. But then, once I sort of crossed that, it was more like, I think people expect of me that I'm bolsterous and that I'm outrageous and like it's part of my personality at this point. Mm. So I think even with my vanilla friends, it was like they were like, "Oh, tell me about the spanking." Like there was never a, a place where it came from. <gasps> what yeah. it, you know? Um, but definitely, there's definitely anxieties in finding your place. Mm. In finding your kinks, in that experience with the other person while you're experimenting, while you're like, ooh, I do like spanking, ooh, I don't like this. Yes, I always, always wanted to try bondage and ropes. Like, it sounded so great. I had never until Devin met somebody that I was like, yes, I give you full control of my body. Mm -hmm. Like, a, A, you need to be attracted to the person who has the knowledge and the confidence and the skills to do this very risky thing. And you also need to have the chemistry and you also want to like, it's a lot of things that need mm-hmm. to be in accordance. Um, and also I didn't want to date them. I didn't want it to be serious. So I needed someone who was okay with that. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of parameters. So I think those can be high anxieties. But if you, again, coming back to like this, like all these things have the same 
like tools to get out of any discomfort is communication mm-hmm. and curiosity mm-hmm. and like like um if it doesn't work, that's not that bad. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. don't be so scared of being embarrassed or awkward or, like, that's the point of exploration. That's the point of being like, oh, well, that turns out this this does not work for me. Like, yeah. it's Again, not process like, of elimination. <gasps> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the worst thing that can happen is that you learn something. Or you shit yourself. <laughs> that's pretty bad. It's one of my... Okay, that's one of my insecurities. <laughs> yeah. It's that I'm going to shit myself. I really don't want to shit myself in front of other people. <laughs> Do not want do that. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. That's fair. That's I wouldn't like want to either. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't want to shit myself like by myself either. So. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, let's do one more and then we can start moving towards a bit more of like a natural conclusion. Okay. How do you feel about that? Yeah. You're in control. Well, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) What beliefs did you have as a child about sex and how have they changed? Mm. Oof, oof, deep. Um, My beliefs are, I think as a kid, it was like, first of all, like you were saying, like I was not a part of the conversation. Like there was no moment where my mother was like, this is what sex is or this is what you should expect sex to be uh, it was kind of like please don't get pregnant um and that was it there was no there was no expectation set and then when i first started sort of feeling tingly or or aroused it i just didn't really know what to do with it and i mean i i'm renowned for having terrible like memory like i don't remember a lot of my childhood so i don't I don't have like a narrative of how any of this happened, but I remember, I remember like discovering masturbation and thinking I had to hide it and thinking it was like, it felt good, but it certainly wasn't something that you were allowed to do. And I remember discovering like kisses and I remember sort of these like, I have these flashes of memories, but they're not tied in. They don't have like a a, a narrative to them. And, um, and then when I started having sex, I was very fortunate to have a great first time, mm. like a sexual debut. Um, it was a funny, awkward, but like warm and trusting environment, like between That's me and nice. him. And so it was by no means good sex, but it was like <laughs> a good introduction to like what sex would be. And so, and then after that, I actually like, I remember like shitting myself, <laughs> not literally this time, um, <laughs> to tell my mother because mm. I would have to be like, because she was like, as soon as you have sex, the only thing that I ask of you is like, when you start having sex, tell me so that I can put you on the pill. Mm. And, um, which also is like many implications that are fucked up now, 30 years later, or like 20 years later. But um, I, I remember just being like, it happened <laughs> on the kitchen table. On the like, kitchen table? Oh my no, God. no, no, no. I, I, we were at the kitchen table. Oh. Like, <laughs> no. I was like, excuse me? No, it uh, happened on vacation in the summer. And when I came back, I was like, so, like, this happened. And she was like, you're not my baby anymore. Like, literally oh. said those words. And I was like, haven't been for a while, but okay. Um, sure. If that's what you want to take away from it. Um, but yeah, I don't think I ever had like conceptions of what sex was supposed to be. Like there was Mm. no, 
like even in school, like, and I was bullied in grade five and six for being hypersexual. Whatever what? that means, because I wasn't. I just had boobs. Uh, <laughs> um, and I was tall. Right. So it was like visible boobs. Yeah, they were projecting. Boobs. They were projecting sexuality onto you. A hundred percent. Yeah. And so I think, I think I was like trying really hard not to be sexual, but then also I am very sexual. Like mm. you kind of had that right. Um, <laughs> maybe not that early, but you know, yeah. Maybe that's what made me sexual. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Coping. She'll probably Survival. talk to her shrink one day <laughs> about this. Um, but yeah, so I, I think. The evolution of, of my perce- perceptions of sex were always something that I knew I would have no help with mm. and that I would have to figure out by myself and that, you know, I mean, I, my first real boyfriend, like, was twice my age, so I feel like I was always like, I'm just going to try things. Like, mm-hmm. I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember having a lot of fear because, like, how bad could it get because it was already forbidden. Right. Interesting. You know what I mean? Did you not, like... Did you not fantasize when you were masturbating before you had sex? Like, in that way, did you not have an idea of what sex could be like? Yeah. Yeah, there's this... There's this um, funny thing that happened when I was writing the book. I, like, started reopening these um, notebooks. From when you were younger? From when I was a teenager. Oh, God. Cringe! (laughs) But there was this one text... That I'd written, I was 17. I was already having sex. But I was 17 and I had this crush on this guy and he was like, looking back, totally my type. Um, <laughs> was like older, not by, not by as much as my first boyfriend, but like still a bit older. We'd like talked about movies and culture and it was this like romanticized artist mm. father figure-ish. And, um, hello, daddy issues. Um, but like, I, we, and we like hooked up, had sex, and I wrote this text, but it was like fiction. It was not what had happened. I was, I was like writing this like fictionalized description of all these like orgasms I did not have because I didn't have orgasms until I was 24. Um, so I, it, 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 there was an idea that it had mm. to be special, that it had to be romantic, that it had to be mind blowing because sex in the city was my teenage years. Like oh, yeah. that's that, like that's the nineties and the yeah. early two thousands. Like, um, that's the backdrop. So mm-hmm. I already had some sort of like feminist ish agenda, um, mm-hmm. somewhere in my cultural like repertoire. Um, but it was also like, yeah, you can get it, but it has to be special. You can, you know, there's like, there was, there was conflicting messaging that I didn't know what to do with. Everything, all of our messaging about sex is conflicting. Yeah. But I think that was like the, when you say fantasize, like, yeah, I read that like much later. I was like, what the fuck? I don't, I don't remember being like that, but I was, you know what I mean? Like it's, I think that's a big trajectory when you finally I think that's what changed like my attitude to sex it's like when you finally realize that every experience is worth living every experience that you choose to experience that's your choice Mm -hmm. is worth experiencing like there is no lost time or lost blah it's it's all a learning opportunity 
um, in mm. your big giant process of elimination that your life is. Yeah. So as long as it's your choice. That's what I. That's what I. That's what yeah. I was trying to like <laughs> emphasize. Is like your choices are valid. Yeah. Um. And and so that's when I started not being so hard on myself for mm-hmm. continuing to have sex with strangers and continuing to want to have sex with strangers and not need the relationship not need the the attachment and be like mm-hmm. a girl with the morals of the guy which yeah. is what it, they, which is what it was called back then it was it was very much and even up, up until recently like yeah. it's still like oh you act like such a dude and it's like why and also like have you met dudes lately they're not like that like even when you want them to be like that they're not so it's like <laughs> it's like a double negative stereotype that doesn't help anybody no much like most most stereotypes. Yeah. Um, yeah. My God. I could talk so much about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know when you started masturbating, but I, you know that we start masturbating in utero, right? Do we? Yeah. I didn't know that about Yeah. There's documented cases of like, well, yeah, it's the thing and babies masturbate. And yeah. They, you know, um, but I didn't know in utero. I in knew utero. really young, but I didn't know in utero. Yeah. And so, um, the thing is, is that we get to a point in time where, you know, we subtly start learning that, oh, we shouldn't be doing this around people and it's a private thing. And, um, and then people reacquaint themselves with masturbation in preteenhood. Yeah. But for me, honestly, I can remember instances of being a toddler and like openly masturbating in front of my great aunts, or like being. See, I have none of those. Four, um, or being like. I think my first memory is like maybe like I'm six and I'm like brushing up against the pillow. Yeah. Or like a couch. Oh or yeah, something. yeah, yeah. Like something like that. Yeah. That's my rubbing first up against memory. things. Rubbing up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or like I would do it at nighttime before I would go to sleep. I'd be yeah. Like, yeah. This is great. It feels great. Um, and. Yeah. So it's always it's so intriguing to me. And at those times, like, of course I'm not fantasizing about sex. I'm just like, this, this is nice. This feels good, yeah. This feels good. This is a welcome release in so my when, day. So when does the sex script begin? The sex script begins begins when you start feeling shame. I think that, like, there's this weird dynamic of, like, You're that only is... supposed to do that with someone else in a romantic relationship, so why are you doing it on your own? There's this weird shame thing of, like, you're too young to be being sexual. Yeah. You know, and what you're doing is sexual. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so then it's like, okay, well, now I can only associate sex with this act. Yeah. Which is so bizarre because adults are continuously projecting sexuality onto young children. Yep. And it is so problematic and just unfair to little developing minds. Yeah, and the physical body and, like, mm-hmm. the physical experience of living in a body. And, like, yeah. yeah, it's it's so, it's such a shame, haha, shame pun, um, <laughs> that, uh, that that kind of shit continues because, you know, like, the benefits of masturbation without a sexual script, like, the benefits of rubbing your clit, in, in this case, clit, because that's what I have, like, not me. Rubbing whatever you have that feels good mm-hmm. um, for you is just physically good for you. Mm-hmm. 
You don't have to orgasm. You don't have to think about such and such acts or blah, blah, blah. Like, the actual physical... Like, I, I honestly thought about this just before we started recording. I went to the bathroom to pee. And I was like, hmm, I have more, like, um, discharge than I usually have. And then I remembered that I masturbated this morning. And I was like, oh, this makes a lot more sense. <laughs> um, this is my body reacting to that. Um, and I was like, it wasn't... I had forgotten because it was just like eating an apple. It's like a yeah. thing that you do, like, that you like to do. Like, why does it have such an epic moral connotation? Oh, history. Yeah, no. It was, <laughs> yeah. It was, it was a rhetorical question. I know. Question. <laughs> I know. But I'm sighing. <laughs> I'm sighing in my head about history. Tune into Julia's future podcast about the historical ramifications <laughs> <laughs> of masturbation shaming. Yeah. Um, Okay, simple question, uh-huh. another AMA, I think we'll wrap it up here because this will be a very welcome conclusion, but uh-huh. what are your dreams? I am renowned for having very little imagination, <laughs> <laughs> just why I write nonfiction, which is why I talk to other people, like I cannot sit there. For all of Mark's, like, complaints, like, just be there and sit with yourself. I cannot. I don't have, like, this escapatory, like, capability. It's just Mm -hmm. not part of my design. Um, So dreams are a tough one for me because they imply imagination. Um, Mm. And I think as we've sort of come to understand in this episode, I don't do anything with intention um, other than my sexual life. Um, I don't plan to like I'll I'll plan in a short direction for like Mm. a year or two like I plan to finish my book and I plan to get into film but like only when someone was like why don't you do that um so I think there's dreams that are like I I I want to direct a movie one day like there are things like that that are like on the want to do list yeah but there's no like grand vision or like you know what I mean like I think I could be just as and I have sort of this like competing cognitive dissonance sometimes where I'm like I would be just as happy having Mark's giant twins somewhere by the sea while he has a food truck (laughs) you know what I mean yeah and the small existence quote-unquote small existence of just like that unit as much as I would probably be happy running a fucking studio with you know what I mean like it doesn't I'm trying not to put value on wherever the life goes because I think the more I think dreams are good and they're good if you're someone who needs them to motivate you but I'm pretty motivated as like a person so I think that that would only set myself up for disappointment like the more expectations I set the more Mm -hmm. disappointed I am that's like a thing that I've noticed so I try not to set expectations for myself that I don't know that I'll want to complete like I find it for my own sake and my own personality, I find it dangerous being like, this is what you have to do. And then I'm like, eh. like this is the problem with my to-do lists. I make these to-do lists that are way too big for a day. And then I'm like, I failed because I set this expectation that I was going to be this good. Perfectionism is real. Right? And yeah. so I try not to have grand visions like that because, because they haven't done me any good. Yeah, that's fair. How about... Uh, what are your dreams, not for you, but for the world? Mm. Maybe you can contextualize it in the now. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
think it goes back to sort of what we talked about in the beginning of just like hopefully we all learn something from the now mm-hmm. hopefully we all undo our need for certainty and being right and being in control and just give everyone a fair shot at a joyful existence Mm -hmm. you know what I mean like I mean I can go into detail about like abolishing prisons and the police state and billionaires and um giving black people and people of color and indigenous people and immigrants the same starting point that white people have enjoyed for centuries Mm -hmm. like Yes, those things need to happen, but more generally, I think those things will happen once we realize that capitalism and liberal cultural hegemony has led us to a point of destruction. Mm. Nobody wins from this. Nobody wins. Some people lose more, black people being one of them, but nobody wins from this. Mm-mm. Yeah, the five super rich white dudes who are like have been running shit behind yeah, the, the scenes for Jeff like Bezoses of the world, even behind the Rothschilds, like the fucking yeah. whoever, like whoever you are pinpointing this conspiracy to, which by the way, like has actually been true. Like I, I'm not talking about Bill Gates in particular, but like people like that have been running the world, yeah, for their own benefit. Whilst destroying everyone in the process and everything in the process. And under the guise of benevolence. Which is bullshit. Yeah. So I think that's sort of a dream and a hope that we step back and go, fuck capitalism. Fuck quote unquote democracy. I know this is a, this is a contentious one because people like that word. I, as a Swiss person, the most democratic state that has ever been because we have seven presidents and blah, blah, blah. It's bullshit. Nobody needs to vote on the color of the fucking fence near the highway. Like, that is unnecessary. If you think that's an important matter, you are being blinded from important matters. Like, that is... Like, they're... they're, I'm not saying, like, we should have autocratic rulers, but I'm saying our understanding of the benevolence of democracy is flawed. Mm -hmm. And in my humble opinion... Should be undone. So that's like a thing that, that, and if that makes me an anarchist by your definition, call me that. I don't care. Um, but yeah, I think there's, um, there's a lot of like, we owe a lot of things to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and real debt though, like not like economic debt, like countries owe each other money. Money is not a real thing. It's, it's an invention. It's a, like cultural convention it's mm-hmm. a social agreement that isn't real yeah um i mean like we owe people lives we owe people the opportunity to live yeah with dignity and respect and yeah justice yeah, <laughs> yeah. but we have an unjust justice system so Where are you going to, like, you cannot work with those tools. There is no way you can work with this justice justice system. Like, Mm -hmm. our legal justice system is, at this point, in my my opinion, too far gone. Like, Mm -hmm. you can't, 
said more and more precedents that are all going to contradict each other because in one case, yes, you need to be on that side of the argument and, on, and in another case, you have to be on the other side of the argument because there's always going to be a case that, that doesn't agree with it. So there is at some point going to have to be a reform of how we understand the basic principle of what justice is. Yeah. 100%. I think uh, tying this, or rather, to reiterate what you've said, um, what I'm hearing is we need transformation. Yeah. And where that transformation will come from is through communicating with one another, Mm -hmm. receiving those communications with humility Mm -hmm. and integrating those into setting priorities where they matter. Yeah. And putting them in action, putting them in place, like seeing it through. Yeah. Being like calling into question why things are and not just keeping them that way because they are the way that they have been. And And not also just saying, oh, well, yeah, we know that's a bad way that it is, but it is, um, that way. That sucks. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, this is my problem with critical thinking and, like, post-structuralist and post-modernist theory. It's like, all of the things are fucked. And now what? Yeah. So what now? <laughs> so what now? Yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah. And I think that's where we're stuck right now because we are engaging in deliberate um, semantic arguments within our own side of the argument. Mm. And knocking each other down for saying quote unquote the wrong thing or not being as well informed as you should be if you were speaking you know what I mean like instead of being like yo we're on the same fucking side we don't have the we don't have the privilege to be doing this right now we need to like literally do things like this linguistic battle of like the left or the social justice warrior world or the like it's like you're harming your own self like within within your like this is the point, I think, and this is the point of, like, the now where, like, Black Lives Matter are, like, fuck all of y'all, shut the fuck up. Like, we need physical, visible, actionable resolution right now. Well, and it's also, like, well, for instance, with all of the black boxes and the hashtag Black Lives Matter just actually drowning out all of the, like, days, weeks, and years worth of actual... um black lessons black educators being out there and and raising awareness and understanding of why black lives matter and um and why we should be doing yeah something that's so flawed is that people feel like they need to take on the battle themselves and it's like no no we already have fucking leaders we already have the people who have been doing the work instead of you co-opting their space to position yourself as someone who cares fucking point people in their direction yeah just be like don't don't replicate things for the sake of centering yourself and performing allyship just fucking elevate the people who have been doing the work all along i just don't under stand that but again i think that that's part of the transformation right yeah that's part of the whole i'm not saying silence yourself and take yourself out of the equation because that won't help what i'm saying is listen 
Listen. Listen and realize. Like, this is so tough to articulate, obviously, but like, the point is that this is not acceptable. Mm. Our state of the world is not acceptable. It doesn't depend on your morals. It doesn't depend on your beliefs or what religion. It doesn't depend on your economic status. It is not acceptable. Full stop. Full stop. And however you want to rationalize what you're not doing to yourself is a waste of time. Yeah. And resources and privilege and money. And space. And space. So... That's my hope is that this and Hannah Gatsby talked about it in her last like um, stand up stand up is like the the arrogance mm. the arrogance of thinking that y- you know anything a hundred percent that you're because you are subscribed to these like quote unquote leadership of the world like because you're white because you're American because you're whatever your privilege might come from, like, put, put that on a shelf. Mm. It's a nice little trophy. Leave it there. Let it collect dust. Yeah. Move on. Humility. Yeah. That simple. Yeah. Yeah, so that's my, that's my hopes and dreams. Um, All right. I think. Hopefully we got there. <laughs> they might change. <laughs> they might change. That's uh, right. I'd be wrong. <laughs> that's okay. That's all right. This world is of emergent design. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for asking me these questions. Oh, thank you for letting me host. I don't know how to... Wrap it up. Wrap it up. So I, I will defer that responsibility <laughs> back to you. But hopefully you've had a comfortable, a comfortable time on your hot seat. I sure have. It was slightly... Slightly discomfort, like good discomfort at times, and also great comfort at others. Um, yeah, thanks guys for guys, thanks folks. I do this still, still 101 episodes. Okay, we're all learning. Whatever. <laughs> um, thank you for listening. Thank you for showing up in episode 101, the first one of season three. Um, I have no idea where season three is going to go, which is fine. Um, but if you have any input, if you have anything to say, if you know anyone who has anything to say, if you have people that you would like amplified, um, point them my way. And um, yeah, take care of yourselves in any way you can, but also like give up your privilege in any way you can. Um, use it wisely and yeah let's Mm. let's not let this continue let's not let this fucked up world just blind us again and gaslight us again and like Mm. tell us that this is just another cycle of like we wake up a little and then we're like back to being oppressed and our brains are like mushed into nothing like don't, don't let that happen let let the rage that you're feeling at the urgency of the situation drive now you. drive you continuously so you're doing this work not only when shit is dire but but during, all the fucking but time. all the fucking time and so i'm gonna plug yes plug I'm gonna plug Dian kim yeah is a local vancouver counselor yep of Korean heritage. She's been on the podcast before. She's on Look the podcast. Look at the episode. 
Um, and Cicely Bell Blaine. Yes, they've also been on the podcast. They are a local racial justice consultant. The yes. two of them have a workshop called Processing Rage. Yep. And also Stratagem Conference. Yep. Yeah. Um, I recommend that you have a look over that workshop, listen to the two of them speak with one another about what it means to mobilize anger in ways that honor your rage and your grief, but also honor the lives of those that need it most. Yeah. And pay them. Fuck. Fucking pay them. People are doing far too much free labor. Hire them. Pay them. Just, yes, put put your money where your intentions are. Like, if, if you know, we've, we, ta- we talked, um, this is, again, we're not wrapping this up, but fuck it. Um, <laughs> we said in- impact is greater than intentions. But if you must start with your intentions, remember that the fucked upness of this capitalist system is that your purchasing power is your power. And so use it wisely. Mm-hmm. As Cicely Bell said on Twitter yesterday, white folks, I suggest making a savings account called reparations. Grateful for the surge in donations and sales, but we got to make it sustainable. Will you buy black every month? Will you donate a portion of your wages to anti-racism? Yeah. 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 Thank Food you. for thought. That's right. Okay. Well, now I promise we actually do have to go because I have to make us espresso martinis. Um, it's very important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, priorities. Priorities. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, do, 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 do something. Um, do not be complacent and do not be complicit. Um, yeah. So that was joyful. And speak to you guys next week. <laughs> Ta-ta. Bye. I'm not going to do that.